is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Shop from these two great places and help the show by clicking through our links at thetomeshow.com when you shop. Hi, this is Wolfgang Bauer, author of Forge of War, Expedition to Demon Web Pits, and a whole lot of independent games you probably don't know. If you don't listen to the Tome, you're a sad, sorry man. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. In this episode, number 213, we're traveling from the frozen north, where we met the followers of Thor and battled the forces of Loki, past the clockwork city of Zobek, and down south into the dangerous lands of the dragons, as we review the Midgard campaign setting. And joining us in this episode is Jeff Wynn. Welcome back, sir. April Fools, I'm really Matt James. <laughs> wow, you don't sound anything like him. Double April Fool! Oh, <laughs> you got me, and it, and you were extra good at it since it's not actually April Fools today. I'm sneaky. You are, and by the time this this gets uh, broadcast, it'll be well after April Fool's Day. It will, will sure. be, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. So should we get to Midgard? Let's get to Midgard. Midgard. Uh, as, as Thor would say. So I guess the only thing I should disclose here is just that I was a patron on the... Was it through Kickstarter to, to, to do this? I don't remember if it, was, if it was Kickstarter or just through his open design process. So I've, I've got the hardcover book with the stamp Ooh. for patron edition and everything. So uh, that's what I read. Hold on. I have a PDF. I also have a PDF, which, full disclosure, I did not pay for. So Midgard... Uh, what is it? Tracy, go. Uh, as far as I really recall, it's Wolfgang's setting that he used in his home games. It is a very big fantasy world, I think. Or at least very detailed. Uh, and it pulls a lot of particularly Northern European myths in it, although there are other, other areas as well. I would have to agree, for the most part, with Tracy's uh, description. Uh, he 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 says in the in the intro that it um, a lot of the world did come from his his, his own campaign world, but it was it was specific, but Midgard itself was specifically developed for right. this product, mm-hmm. and and it it it, all, it it was also the world that surrounded like his open design projects. Right, yes. M- most of the adventures and and things that he's written for open design um, and Zobek and all that kind of stuff is is. All part of the setting, right? So it yes. so it's, it's sort of grew from several different different seeds mm-hmm. at one time, kind of. Yeah, because uh, Lost City is supposed to fit into within Midgard pretty well, and then I wrote uh, the Ecology of the Minotaur that had a lot of Midgard specific stuff in it as well. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, so you've so you've written for the setting, huh? Yes, just not in this book. Whoa. Whoa. She's a, she's a big deal. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm learning all the time. That's right. <laughs> Um, and, and I also think it's interesting to point out that Midgard is very much a real world sort of analogous setting. I mean, um, the Northlands and, and what have you that have um, a lot of the sort of Norse mythology are located re- relatively in, in the areas, you know, on the map that are that would coincide with um, the Scandinavian parts of Europe, right? And um, you've got other parts of uh, that, that would coincide with Europe that feel more European-ish. And you've got the, the southern areas that are more exotic and the Dragonlands, which is the Middle East, and, and all these other things that, that are very um, pseudo-fantastic an- analogies for real-world places at certain points in time. Yeah, lots of, lots of fantasy settings do the Europe but different sort of, sort of feel, but this, this one definitely goes, uh, goes, goes to that... Um, Yes, <laughs> it does that more. More yes, definitely does does that more uh, obviously. Yes, and but I think it's it's number one, uh, very very distinctly uh, uh, focused on Eastern Europe as opposed to um, mm-hmm. England, you know, France and Spain. It's 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 more focused on the on the Germanic side of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, number number two. Uh, it it seems to um, uh, make a make a bigger effort to to pull in a lot a lot of the real world cultures as as opposed to simply uh, uh, painting a a pastiche if if, if, mm-hmm. if that's the, if that's the, the the right word I'll take it yeah okay yeah but like, yeah. What? I mean, if Forgot- you if you look right. at the map, it even looks a lot like Europe. It, with, it with looks a lot, a lot like like Europe and North Africa and the Middle East and and yeah. Russia and, and all that it's sort of all together. And and other settings do that. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at Pathfinder campaign setting, it looks a lot like Europe and Africa. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Greyhawk campaign setting, it looks a lot like Europe with each with with East switch with West, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even even Forgotten Realms has the ocean on the west and sort of like a Mediterranean type of deal in the in in the middle, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's some definitely some some vague um, similarities in a lot of settings, but this one very much. Um, I mean, the analogies go beyond just the geography. You know, I do. Good. <laughs> it has been seen. So so. That said, given that we've we've established that Midgard does a lot of the similar things that other settings do in terms of taking real world Europe and and making analogies to different cultures, but making it fantasy and and all, all that kind of stuff, um, what makes Midgard unique? What makes Midgard unusual? Ley lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 old ones. Explain the old ones. Uh, all right. Well, there's a region called uh, the Western Wastes, which uh, apparently uh, there were some wizards, and they fought with each other a long, long time ago, and they summoned Cthulhu several times over. And the wizards are gone, but Cthulhu's still there. Just yeah. frozen. He's, uh, he's like that, Cthulhu. 
So you've you basically got this huge desert with like different giant Cthulhu monsters just kind of frozen in time. Like they're moving but just very, very slowly. And they're just there, mm-hmm. and weird stuff happens around them. Which I suppose explains why the cultures are more Eastern European focused rather than Western, because the Western European analog- analogous location um, has been devastated by the Great Old Ones. There you go. Those darn wizards. <laughs> Tracy, what, do you, what did you find unique? Um, well, so it's hard for me to know if it's unique, because I don't... I, don't necessarily. I don't necessarily have a lot of experience with different campaign settings, but just the level of detail at times seemed to be like. I guess you can kind of get that in the Forgotten Realms, um, but it would seem a bit different to me. For for a a, a modern brand new campaign setting, Tracy, you you are absolutely right. It's it's a very detailed setting. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that if you wanted this level of, of detail, even in the Forgotten Realms, which is a very old setting now, um, you'd have to look through multiple products. Whereas this book has a lot of detail, a lot of um, dense, pa- densely packed information all together. Right. And I like that. It, 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 it feels like it's, uh, you know, it feels like it's a... It's, uh, it's, uh, Second edition days all over again. <laughs> yeah. We actually we actually have campaign setting with it with with some meat on its bones. See, I, f- I find that that's both the like you said that that's that's a good thing, but it's also a stumbling block that I run into. Um, I found it an incredibly difficult book to read because it's just so dense. You know, getting through the first uh, you know ten pages of of timeline of events was a chore and then then you get into the, each individual region and it's just so detailed and so dense it just i feel like it, it's a lot to get through and a lot to process and i get to the end of it it's like wait a minute do i actually remember and understand any of the stuff i just read you know <laughs> you just you just have to train yourself to to um find find what what you need in the book and mm-hmm. and and break it all down and it yeah it, you know, Tracy had the benefit of a of a of a hardcover. I I find it's really difficult when you're reading a a PDF mm-hmm. just just to just to judge like wh- wh- where am I in 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 the book, mm-hmm. right? And if I come across a reference to something I read earlier, what page was that on? How do mm-hmm. how do I get back to it? I have to I I I can't flip to it. I have to scroll around. I have to scroll to it, and that could that could take take forever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you you really do get. Lost in a book when you're when you're reading it as a as a PDF. Yeah, and I, and you know that that's a that's an interesting point to make. You know, I, I'm somebody who has almost wholeheartedly converted over to uh, using e-readers and and specifically my iPad or my phone um, when I'm reading these days. Uh, but I haven't fully converted over in terms of game products. And this book is certainly an argument for why physical product is still a good idea. Right, um, mm-hmm. I, I found reading the PDF version um, much more difficult than I would flipping through um, an actual hardcover copy. But there are lots of bookmarks, and that's helpful. Yeah, there are. No, it's well bookmarked. Uh, but yeah, I mean the 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 density for me is not a complaint because I just love diving into a setting. I mean, I'm I'm a huge Tolkien fan, mm-hmm. and you know here here I am. You know, years after reading Lord of the Rings for the first time, I am still learning more about that setting. So, you know, 
Absolutely, and I, I think, absolutely, yeah, and I th- and I think that um, I think that's that's a good point to make is that I think I don't know that the density is good or bad, right. uh, but I think it appeals to different kinds of of people differently, you know. Um, as somebody who was looking at Midgard and thinking, oh well, maybe I'll do a, a, a short run game in this setting, you know, just to try it out and, and test out some of the cool things they have in it and whatever. Um, it, it's really hard to invest the kind of time it takes to really dig into it in order to do sort of a casual encounter with it. You know, if I'm going to get into Midgard, it's because I want to run a serious Midgard campaign. Well, there, there, there are Jeff. There, there, there were several uh, setting setting <laughs> products that 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 came out before the Midgard yes. campaign setting, such as uh, the the Zobek Gazetteer, which I which I own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I if if I had not read that before I I read read this, I I, I might have been more lost. Sure. Than I was. Yeah. What do you think, Tracy? Uh Oh, in regards to uh, being lost, or in, in regards to like how how dense it is and how how easy it is to get so, into. I had a really hard time finding an, a good entry point into it because it was chapter after chapter of areas, and um, since I wasn't necessarily going to run it in a campaign uh, right now, it. It was hard for me to get into it. I loved just flipping through and then finding uh, little odds and ends that 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 caught my eye and and go and doing it that way. And that's how I actually did a lot of it, uh, like looking at a lot of it. Um, it's one of those things where this. So it says it's for Pathfinder, and it does give a lot of uh, uh, Pathfinder information, stat blocks, uh, referencing to the Pathfinder core rulebooks and other things like that. It also supports age, which is, I guess, something we should also talk about mm-hmm. uh, in terms of being unique. Um, but it it's also a product that lives outside of any system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, th- you're right. Th- and there's, I actually found the the amount of rules and mechanical stuff in here to be fairly light. Um, And where it was, uh, I also found it very easily to find an analogy in other systems. For example, if I was running this in fourth edition and I looked through the classes, or not the classes, the the races, um, all of the races that are there exist as fourth edition races with a few exceptions that can very easily be be converted. Like Dragonkin could very easily just be Dragonborn. Um, You know, the Gearforged could just be Warforged. Mm-hmm. And you basically can otherwise run everything else as is, and you don't have to you don't have to pull up any new mechanics. Uh, and some of the mechanics that exist, like the status system, could be tacked onto any anything, any game. Yeah, I, I think. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Tracy. I think for me, and, and this isn't anything. This is more of a personal taste thing. Uh, the 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 fact that it's so much about uh, Germanic Europe or, or that sort of thing didn't. Didn't as appeal to me, I guess. Um. Uh, see, I th- and I think feel like that's part of the the denseness issue, right? Is that I feel like um, he dove straight into the into the depth and the detail of it all, and I don't know. I feel like I I sort of needed to be primed first, you know? Yeah, like I didn't know why I should like. Okay, so this is gonna sound horrible, but I don't I don't actually mean it. But I almost felt like I don't understand why I should care hmm. about the different. Uh, the different um, areas and the different kingdoms and stuff. Like, uh, I think it, as you read through it, you can hear sometimes. You can read sometimes the there is a struggle between this group and that group. Um, but 
I felt like I could have used a lot more just at the beginning, like, I don't know, some fiction that pulled you in and these people are well, that would that would be the whole history section in the in the front. <laughs> I know and I all, all about the the uh, you know the, mm-hmm. the the great elven kingdoms and 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 how the humans uh, re- rebelled against them and I know but I the, the I've mage read wars that, and I've read that stuff so many times already. <laughs> like yeah. and but that's okay like I mean that's just me and and I'm I'm trying to make sure like people understand that I'm not saying that this is a bad thing about the book, but it just, it never, it never got to the point where I felt pulled in. So there was, there was, there was no part of this session, Tracy, that, that you thought was cool. Not in the history part. Like, I don't know. Well, and see, and the thing is, is that uh, as I, when I, when I was trying to read it cover to cover, I was feeling very much like Tracy was. And then when I just started flipping through it and finding cool parts to read and then sort of j- yeah. jumping around, that's when I found the cool parts um, that really kind of started – you know, the the deity section, the, the gods. Yes. I thought was the best part and it's the last chapter of the book. I'm like, oh my gosh, if this had been like chapter two, I would have been so much more hooked and interested in reading the rest of it, you know, because that would have given me a way in to explore everything else. Right, and the things I've read, like the the other things I've read outside of this, where I read a little bit about Zobek and the um, and a lot of the Clockwork work stuff and Lost City and the Halls of Mountain King, those things appealed to me. I mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it was just everything being dumped on me at once. I don't know. Maybe that was it. No, I understand that. So I. I guess what we're what we're saying is this this would be a book for someone who has already come to Midgard through some other product like an adventure or the Zobek Gazetteer or something and they just want to get a larger picture of the whole world. I think I think that's I think it's fair to say that it it would be good to Explore the setting through other things. Pick up one of the adventures, uh, you know. Pick up Courts of the Shadowfey or the Lost City or something. See how it goes, and then if, if, as your campaign sort of expands and they want and your players want to explore other things, then then this is a good way to sort of um, get that detail and that depth of information about what's going on. I actually found the um, the Dragon Empires to be the most intriguing section, the most re- intriguing region that I looked at. I, I'm really interested in that, and I know that. Um, that Wolfgang uh, also worked on Al-Kadim back in the day, and I really love that setting, which is also uh, Middle Eastern-inspired. So uh, I, I find his take on converting a Middle Eastern-inspired concept into fantasy uh, really intriguing, and that, that kind of stuff hooks me really well. And this is a completely different take on it than Al-Kadim, but also a very intri- interesting one. Well, and, and the other thing is the history section is reads like a history book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of those other adventures and stuff will have more almost fiction going to it. So you could you can really identify with a, a character as a whole rather than uh, remembering that at 42 years, the elves came and I don't know. I, I, I happen to like history, but... <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. But I... You know, it's, I kind of, it's kind of important to learn your history because that's, that's, you know... Yeah, but I like I like exploring history through the eyes of individuals rather than a uh, twenty thousand foot view. Uh, Got it. Look, well, 
I, I read the entire uh, Forgotten Realms um, Grand History of the Realms book, you know, which was just a giant book that was one one big timeline, and I went cover to cover on that. So, uh, how? Do you teach history, though? I, I am also a history teacher, so maybe uh, I, maybe I have a different uh, approach to some of these things. So, so what did you think of the, of the history section? I I enjoyed the history section. I feel like again, I feel like I would have enjoyed it more if I if I had been hooked into it before the history section. Mm. You know, um, so it did feel a little bit like a chore getting through the whole history section. But once I knew a little bit more about the setting, then I wanted to go back and look at the history again. So I don't think the history is bad. I just felt like it, yeah. was, it was a little dry to start off with. Mm. Yes, I, I I think I can agree with that. So. I guess our, our other big piece of advice here is um, this is definitely a book to to jump around in. You know, read the pit, bits that, that hook you and, and explore those and then continue to expand your experience out to the rest of the setting. It's not necessarily a book you want to read cover to cover. Great. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's definitely a, a reference book. Yeah. It is, it is, it is not a, a casual Sunday afternoon sit down and read book. Unless you know, settings are what you <laughs> what you like to read on a casual Sunday afternoon, which I do. So, Great. so this is definitely a book for you. Yes, and and I think it, you know again I, I could totally see myself picking up a, a section of this book and totally um, running an adventure in that section, and then this book is perfect for that, right? I now have all the detail I need to run an adventure in um, the Dragon Empire. And then if the players want to expand out and go somewhere else, then I can reference that section. And so you're right. I think it's a great reference book for that. Um, and it'll be useful for that, you know, for a long time. Which is, which is what a campaign setting book should be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, it's, but it's, it's definitely a, as you pick it up, skip around and read the bits that interest you and, and figure out what you want to do with it and explore the book. Don't, don't necessarily go through the book in order is my advice. Definitely not, no. Right on. Um, what about the sidebars? I wanted to ask about the sidebars. Because what about them? I found the sidebars to be different than most book sidebar, game book sidebars that you get. Um, because a lot of the sidebars I felt like were a direct response to the open design process. You know, uh, it felt like he was writing design little two paragraph design essays to the patron to patrons explaining why he did certain things, and I found that interesting because you don't normally get that in a game book. You know, I, I, there were these little sort of design notes of this is why I designed this and why I did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He there there, there were a few instances where I where he was speaking uh, uh, directly to to the reader explaining stuff. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not sure um, because my take was I like that um, because you know, and but maybe that's just me because I've done enough stuff and I've talked right. to enough designers at this point where getting an inside look as to how how people are designing things as as they're designing them like that uh, is interesting to me. But I don't know if that's something that most casual readers or, or users of the book are going to want. You know, is that just a distraction and taking up space when you wish that you would have gotten more? book content at that point. And I, I'm, I'm curious what other people's take on that was. In a, in a book packed with useful information, I think it's more useful information. But right on. Yeah. And Tracy had the experience of being a, a patron. I don't know if any, if you noticed were any of those things just taken straight over from the patron conversations or 
Uh, I didn't. I had gotten busy when this was in okay. main development, so I didn't get to see a lot of those conversations. Sure. Well, and I don't know if you've ever done a Patreon project, uh, but sometimes the conversation there's a lot going on. Yeah. Well, in fact, that was my. Um, I did a a Tome Show Presents um, series on that, where they gave me a, a review, basically a review senior patronage to a product. Um, and and that was sort of my takeaway in the whole process is that if you really want to get the most out of it, you've got to have a lot of time to to really engage in it. Right. You know, because because these conversations go quick and and there's a lot to them. Well, and particularly with this one, because if I if I recall correctly, there was a whole. Uh, different patrons maybe had different section areas. I mm. It was a huge project. Well, yeah. Uh, much, much, <laughs> it's, it's, almost, bigger, it's almost 300 pages. Yeah, much bigger than uh, any other patron project I'd been on. So you take what you had gone through and then you multiply it out tremendously. Mm-hmm. I, I liked how there's the information in a typical Marathi army. With all these numbers, can I can I just say that I really like the interior art? Yes, you can say it, that. Not it. it, it uh, who whoever's doing the the uh, character drawings? It, it remind and it, it might be the same artist. Reminds me of um, that graphic novel, um, Artesia or something. Okay, yeah, and or or, or Artemis or or whatever her her name is. Is, is that the one that you that you told me about, Tracy? Uh, might have been. Uh, Sounds familiar. A, yeah, it's a female warrior, right? Yeah, but it's it's a lot of fully clothed female heroes. <laughs> it's funny that as you say that, I'm looking at the pay, at the the cover art uh, for chapter or chapter art for chapter ten, where you've got a bunch of naked people running around. Okay, well. <laughs> well, that's like I believe that's the cover from one of the Kubal Quarterlies. Oh, is it? that the, is that the gods one? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, not the not the not the chapter covers, but like like the like like the like the portraits. Yeah, yeah. In the in the racist section and the you know this is Duke so and so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, a lot of them, particularly at the beginning of the book, uh, the women in particular are. are Fully dressed and everything. It's uh, amazing how how far we've come. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, actually, the the one on page twenty three, the woman there reminds me of uh, the, the character from Artesia. Yeah, because she's got the curly long hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, exactly. And the, and the thing is, is and speaking of page twenty three, one thing to point out is that. There are humans, but there are different groups of humans in here. Uh, yes, and they're not. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Which is which is also reminiscent of Greyhawk, in in which you had different sub races of human. Right, and then and not only do you have different groups here, but within each king kingdom and barons and everything, baronies and everything, there's there are there are differences. So it's very detailed. <laughs> just just like the real world, almost right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But there's still only one kind of dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> I also like that uh, since we're talking about art, I noticed I note that the the art changes in ways that um, makes a lot of sense. 
You know, as, as you look at the character portraits, there is a certain style of art. But then, as you look at like um, the depictions of the the, the pantheon, the gods, um, is, you have almost a more I don't I, I want to say mythical style of art with those. You know, they're less detailed. They're more um, they, they 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 look like like idols. Like, yeah, like, they sort like of living yeah, idols. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's and kinda... they're and they're all wearing masks. Have you have you noticed that? Oh yeah, well no, absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite things about the whole thing was was the gods and this whole concept of them being masked, and the fact that you know the gods of diff- there's you know all these different gods and and this region has their gods and that region has their gods, but actually they're kind of the same gods. And even though they behave differently, there's reasons for that. And and, and um, we don't necessarily know which gods are the, are the same gods. Like there's there's some gods who are who are male in one part of the world and they're female in another part of the world, and they've got different alignments. Mm-hmm. And and it's yeah, that's really neat. And, and yet they can be the same god or not. No, and and, and what it's, what it's trying to do, I think, is. Uh, and he has uh, one of his design sort of sidebars on this uh, at some point. I don't remember where it was. Um, but one of the, well, I think what he's trying to do is create a sense of mystery around the gods, uh, mm-hmm. a, sense, a sense of the unknown. That you know, One of the things you don't typically have in a, in a fantasy setting, especially for D&D, is this mystery of, of well, are the gods real or are they not real? And and you know is it justified to believe in them or not? Because you know they get down and walk around with you, or they grant spells and they do all these different things, um, and so they're very active. And so there's no doubt. Well, of course the gods are real. I saw one the other day, um, but he's trying to add in some of this sort of mystery to it. Well, some of the gods might be real. Some of the gods might actually be this other god. Some of the gods might be completely false altogether, and, and it adds some some of that doubt back into the into the the world. You know. Well, and and it's not only with the gods that he does that; it's with the felines too, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of unknowns there. Right on. And it's also worth noting that one of the things that, that part of me struggles with, but but it's kind of cool, is the fact that the world is flat, like, like disc, like like uh, disc world. Right, but the rest of the the rest of the the solar system is not like you know there are other planets and they're not flat. <laughs> and and they, Did, they, they does all he say around. that? I thought like he how, I, don't, I thought he mentioned that somewhere, um, but that this you know but this this planet is flat and it's surrounded by this great serpent and there actually is an edge of the world and you can sail off of it. Maybe maybe the the, the, the other planets are flat. I suppose it's possible, but I thought I read otherwise. In any case, I don't know. Any uh, any last minute thoughts on this before we uh, move along because it's almost time for us to go chat with uh, Wolfgang. Uh, it's it's awesome. You should all buy it. And when you talk to Wolfgang, tell him thank you for Planescape <laughs> from, from me. I'll see what I can do. Okay. <laughs> all, right. all right. Well, I guess that's our thoughts on Midgard then. So uh, let's head off and talk to Wolfgang, the author of the setting. Uh, see what he has to share about the world that he's crafted. Take it away, Tracy. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, 
but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. We're here now with Wolfgang Bauer, author of the Midgard campaign setting. Wolfgang, welcome back to the show. Ah, it's good to be back. The man who barely needs an introduction anymore, right? Yeah? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you've, been, you've been on uh, quite a bit. I have. I have. I like the show. Well, good. We like you. <laughs> oh, it's a circle of love. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So, yeah, what can I tell you about? All right, well, let's start off. Uh, what is Midgard? Oh, sure, sure. Well, just a small, small question like that. Yeah. Uh, well, Midgard started as um, the free city of Zobek, also known as my home campaign in the last 10 years, uh, six, seven years. And it, it kind of grew out of that. You know how campaigns are, right? It's like, eh, I'm just going to write a little thing, we'll play a few adventures, it'll be fun! And then, next thing you know, it's like, you know, four years later, and you've got binders and hard drives filling up with stuff. Um, so, so that's how it started. Um, it then turned way more professional as um, as we started to say, well, what is this world around Zobek? Um, what's in the Northlands? What's in the mountains? What's in the forest? Um, and then got even bigger uh, with a big open Kickstarter style project that uh, that shipped a hardcover, so <laughs> so yeah, it's it's one of those things that's a little hard to pin down. I like to think of it as sort of grounded or realistic European fantasy um, at its core, um, as opposed to say perfectly fine, wonderful other fantasy settings that are set like nine billion years in the future or something, right? Um, it's meant to be more traditional fantasy with a few twists. So, and as, as, you, meant, as you sort of alluded to, there are many, many fantasy settings. Um, there are many fantasy settings sort of centered around the same cultures or similar yep. cultures and what have you. So what makes Midgard unique? Why play in Midgard as opposed to Greyhawk or the Realms or some other fantasy setting? Sure. Um, well, there's one good reason to play in uh, Midgard rather than Greyhawk, a setting I love and adore, which is that there's new material coming out for Midgard. (laughs) Uh, And there isn't for Greyhawk and doesn't... not necessarily going to happen. The other reason is that some of the cultures it draws from and some of the decisions, design decisions behind it, um, uh, cast a different sort of net, right? I mean, the name Midgard is Norse. It implies that there's some influence of Norse cultures in the setting, and that's certainly true. There are, uh, you know, slave-taking dwarves who come reaving from the north. Um, it, it also draws from a lot of Germanic and Slavic traditions, and most American or uh, British readers might be less familiar with that than, say, your sort of I don't know if I want to call it standard fantasy, but you know, when you when you think of a, a sort of typical fantasy setting, it like goes British mythology and Celtic mythology, and then sort of fades out from there into non-specific magic. Um, and this Midgard is much more grounded in the traditions of hey, this is the Norse, uh, this is the Germanic sort of culture. Um, 
while at the same time playing Mary Havoc by saying, well, you know, we have this Eastern, near Eastern culture that is the Dragon Empire, and, you know, they really are ruled by dragons. It's very literal about that. <laughs> um, so, on the one hand, yeah, it draws from this sort of grounded European tradition. On the other hand, um, some of the twists are pretty big twists. Yeah, and in fact, I've, I found... Um probably the region that most that most hooked me was the dragon empires uh which is consistent is consistent with you right uh i, yeah. re- I really loved al-kadim which was mm-hmm. a, a middle eastern sort of based uh setting and now i really love the the dragon empires which is middle eastern in in origin yeah if my home campaign had ever veered into the dragon empires for any length of time the setting would not be called midgard it would have been called like the sublime portal or something and <laughs> been set in the east and been an alkademish persian turkish arabian thing i love that culture i love near eastern stuff i love egypt and persia uh, and turkey and and just putting some of that into Midgard was was delightful because I can't talk my players into going into uh, into <laughs> darn, an empire ruled by dragons. I don't know why they resist me. We could have had a very different setting where it was focused in the dragon empires, and then there was this Indian based sort of culture over here. And oh my gosh, it would have been so much different. It would have been. It would have been wonderful. But you know, the sort of assumption for most player characters is, well, if you're ruled by a big fire breathing dragon, I don't want to go there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the dragon empire. I worked very hard not to turn that into the whole book um it's a long chapter but they're sort of the heavies and the bad guys of the setting more often than not but they also if you wanted to set a campaign there uh, and say hey we're all playing dragon kin or kobolds or gnolls or something from the empire um that's totally possible and and they don't see themselves as the bad guys right they're just doing what they do making an empire everyone else is sucking (laughs) <laughs> doing a good job. Look at these petty kingdoms. You guys are a waste. Where are your dragons? So um, that's their take on it. It's just everyone else kind of isn't up to the bar. Trace, I'll let you get a word in. <laughs> well, I was just kind of wondering. So you're saying this is a, a more of a realistic European Well, uh, to setting. a point. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Well, no, no, yeah, to a point. So, but uh, I was wondering, uh, who you, who was there any particular audience that you were trying to, to reach with, uh, with this type of setting? No, I think it's very much. I mean, as as we said earlier, it's a very similar audience to the Greyhawk audience or the Forgotten Realms audience. Uh, it's deliberately a more conservative audience than, say, the Dark Sun audience or, um, I don't know, Eberron or Spelljammer or something, right? Something more. Right. Wahoo-ish. Um, and, and so it's a traditional RPG audience that uh, may say, I mean, even to the point where the reader I was thinking of was like, the guy who says, yeah, Oriental Adventures, I don't know, right? Don't make me play that. Um, and I think that readership is often ill-served because a large part of the, the fantasy market is is fairly traditional and like, well, this is the fantasy we read in novels and this is the culture we grew up with, plus maybe some twists. Um, and I don't know, I don't know. That, that's like the core um, sword and sorcery white guys with swords thing, right? So on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, it's like, 
we have all this tradition and culture and mythology from Europe that's a lot weirder than people know, right? Um, I think there's room to put Amazons and, you know, ancient crones like Baba Yaga um, and blood sorceresses and female oracles who speak to the gods directly and, like, really strong female characters into the setting, too. Um, I think there's room to say, well, it's it's not all British and Celtic, you know, fairies in the wild hunt. Um, there's deep, dark Germanic forests and there's uh, soul-sucking Russian vampires. Yeah, okay. And those stereotypes, I mean... To a certain extent, all of fantasy plays off of stereotypes and, and works with them. And when you're designing, you have to leave hooks for the audience to say, oh, I know what that thing is. I can, I can play that, right? So I say, well, they're German forests or Russian vampires. Of course, in Midgard, those aren't the names they necessarily go by. And, and the gnomes uh, might not have any relationship to any real-world culture. But... But the hooks and the tropes that we know and we grew up with are there, and I think they're deeper than people give them credit for, and they're deeper than a setting like the Forgotten Realms gives them credit for, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, we can rip off our own heritage much more deeply uh, right. and, and do more interesting things with it in our games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was part of my motivation for, for doing Midgard the way I've done. Sure. So in a lot of ways... Um well, you're saying that it's for the same audience as Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms. You also took a very different approach. I mean, it is much more the, – the, the analogies to the real world are much more clear. Yeah. I mean, you can see the analogies to the real world and the realms or Greyhawk without looking very hard. Sure. But in Midgard, I think, yeah, because like whole pantheons and figures are brought over, right? Like the North Norse pantheon is is in Midgard. It's not the only pantheon. Uh, there are Egyptian gods and there are – dragon gods and there are whole new dark gods all over the place um but but if you're comfortable knowing oh norse mythology hey thor and wotan i know who those people are loki okay i want loki to be working with my bad guys um it's all there and it's it's a tighter match to the real world than than greyhawk or the forgotten Mm -hmm. i think of that as a strength i think that makes it more grounded um easy to play fun, really, because new players kind of get it faster. Um, but, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, either. Now, and you've, you've, you've had this really strong tie, and it's really grounded to, to the real world, uh, but as you've pointed out, it's also grounded to cultures and parts of the real world that people may not be as innately familiar with. It's not, oh, sure. you know, it's not uh, English, it's not French, uh, medieval society sort of based um, it's all these other things that they're not as familiar with uh, and I'm curious um, about how to how to hook people into it um, you know it's, well, sure. it, it is a really dense book and it's oh, almost, it really almost 300 pages and it's a lot to get into it's like oh my gosh where do I start and how do I how do I get interested in this and where do I go oh Jeff it could have been like 500 pages oh I right? know <laughs> at a certain point you just gotta say stop we'll we'll do this next thing in a supplement It'll be the first source book, right? Um, so, yeah, we stopped at 300 pages, and it is really dense. But I think because there are those real-world parallels, some of it's easy to pick up. Like, okay, Warring City States. It's sort of Italian, kind of, um, like the Italian Renaissance mercenary companies with other influences layered on it. Um, 
so you can at least say, oh, you know, my family's Italian. I know something about Italian history. You know, maybe this isn't exactly Florence and Rome, but I can kind of run with it. Um, so that makes it more accessible even if, if uh, you know, you grew up in the States and you've never been to Italy. It doesn't matter. You, you kind of have some sense of what that's about. Um, it's not like anybody's going to quiz you on the name of the Caesars uh, <laughs> or that even, you know, Midgard has any ruling emperors like that mm-hmm. in this region. Um, so it's, it's kind of like lifting certain patterns, certain types of societies um, that are still going to be familiar. It's like, okay, well, you have some sense of what a Russian, you know, Ivan the Terrible figure is like. Um, so maybe that gives you a model for some of the, the nobles of the eastern part of the setting. Um, I I don't want to take the real world parallels too far, right? I mean, we have an empire full of dragons. We have the wastes full of uh, inhuman horrors walking the earth. Um, and we have a much tighter connection in Midgard with like divine powers, saints, uh, oracles, all of that. Like divine magic seems... Um, at least the way I run it, uh, seems to be really useful and highly connected and like the gods meddle a lot, um, which makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did I answer your question? I'm not sure. I, <laughs> no, I think so. <laughs> so oh, no, go ahead. No, 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 it's all you. All right. I was going to just ask you, because we were talking a little bit already about how the book is organized. Uh, I know Jeff was very, he loved the gods section, and he's kind of wondering, was there a reason to put the gods towards the back, or, like, how how did those decisions get made? Well, a lot of that was the editor, right? I mean, the book is split up into regions, right, which are sort Mm -hmm. of cultures or tropes. So for those who haven't read it, like, the Western Wastes is all ancient gods and lost tech and nuked, you know, the remains after the Mage War. Um... And there's a section on the heroes and PC races, and there's there's seven regions in all, and then there's the gods chapter and an appendix, a couple of appendices at the end. The gods got stuck at the end partly because it's a really big chapter, um, and and partly just I don't know. The editor said, "I think this goes toward the end." Um, we could have stuck it at the front, but it it kind of felt like. You know, you want to know who the people are and what all the adventure seeds are and what my options are to play a hero and what's the new magic. Um, and what's this deal with ley lines? All that seemed more pressing. The people who need to know about the gods are, you know, the clerics um, and the game master checking out the dark gods section. But it's... It's not like the urgent first thing you want to know, which is, well, where are we starting this campaign? Um, and, you know, who are the villains and, and what are the draws for the region that's most appealing? Um, right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Sometimes these decisions aren't grounded in, like, deep experience. The editor is Michelle Carter, who um, was also my editor many years ago on Planescape uh, and has a a sterling, amazing track record as an editor and, and did a mm-hmm. great job on this book. So, And on a related note, uh, our guest for the for our discussion portion on this episode was Jeff Wynn, and he wanted us specifically to thank you for Planescape. Yes. Oh, okay. So that, that's, well, a good, that's a good opportunity to do that. 
<laughs> All right, thank you. Yeah, that was fun, and I think I learned some things in Planescape that applied to Midgard, mm-hmm. which is, you know, whatever you're doing, put the Planescape twist on it. Make sure that even if you are presenting a fantasy uh, Europe, that it's it all feels fresh and new, and that was one of the most rewarding things I heard from people who are reading it. It's like, like, oh, Midgard, I know what that is. It's going to be some kind of Norse ripoff. And then they get the book and they look through it and they go, holy cats! This is so much more than I thought! And uh, and I say, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> right on. So, uh, yeah. Now, occasionally in your, in your sidebars, mm-hmm. uh, it was not sort of extra information about the setting, but instead it was you specifically sort of breaking down the fourth wall and directly speaking to people about the design process. Yeah, Cobalt Press does this all the time, right? And it's it's something I love to do, and it's something I think the company is especially good at, is saying, well, come design with us, right? I didn't write this book by myself. I had co-authors, many of them. Um, and I had a community of, of backers who, you know, saw our drafts and read stuff and tested things and told me when I was off base or suggested something new. Um, so it's really a collaboration and and those asides that say, well, this is why I did it this way or here was my intent. Um, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Uh, sometimes it just may clarify something that a lot of people like scratch their heads about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like doing those bits. Uh, people seem to like reading them. I, I get a lot of comments on them. Um, I, to me, it's just like, well, this is a setting, and it should, it should give you as many hooks into what was the designer thinking and why is it this way uh, as possible. To, I, I hate settings that are just sort of a black wall of, well, absorb and memorize all this because it just is that way. Mm-hmm. Right, and very few designs go that route anymore. I think, I mean, if I had to blame something I, or give credit to something, I'd say it's the internet and the online community of gaming that's driving that sort of commentary, um, because it is a give and take. Uh, at least it was for me with Midgard. There's a ton of people who contributed huge chunks uh, of the setting that I had never, you know, really written up. It's like here's some notes, Mister Dan Voice. Go write Northlands. Or, you know, I kind of had this in mind, Mr. Jeff Grubb. Why don't you go and write the Grand Duchy? And actually, it was more than a few notes with that. It was like Jeff and I had a lot of lunches. <laughs> How's this really going to work? And I'm like, no, I don't like that. And he would suggest stuff, and I would suggest stuff. So, you know, with different co-authors, it was different takes. Brandon Hodge had some ideas he really wanted to run with in the Western way. So I'm like, okay, well, as long as I get A, B, and C in there, uh, it still feels like the Western ways to me. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I find I, I imagine it's a bit of a, a balancing act because on the one hand, you don't want to tell people how to interpret things and how to play them in their game. Right. Uh, on the other hand, it's also very useful, and and I, w- I kind of wish more products would be very more transparent about that kind of thing, right? Because, for example, uh, and Tracy mentioned, I really like the the Pantheon section. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that to be a, a sort of a real strength of the setting is that this really sort of unique take on, on Pantheons that leave a little bit of the mystery, but, you know, what what is and what isn't and who is who and who's not who and, and how they're all different <laughs> everywhere and all that kind of stuff. And, but I, I think my enjoyment of that wouldn't have been the same if there hadn't been that little design note of this is why they're this way. 
And, yes. And because and that, that helps, was, that informs yeah. me, you know? Exactly. And that was direct feedback, right? Like I wrote the Pantheon chapter <clears> and I passed it <throat> around to the backers and they said, well, that's really interesting, but but we think we're missing a step, right? Could you like explain mm-hmm. a little more? Could you tell us what masks really are? <clears throat> why, did you, why do they work this way? Why? And so I said, oh, okay, I'm going to have to explain myself at least a little. And then, you know, I worked with the editor because she had a similar reaction, which is, this is really cool, but I want to know more, Mm -hmm. which isn't quite the same reaction. But it's, (laughs) you know, if an editor says, you need to give us more, and I'm like, all right, we're already over the page count. Let's just keep going. Um, So, yeah, that section, I mean, I love it to death. I love the masks approach to a pantheon because it, it does keep some of the mystery. I talk about it in the Cobalt Guide to World Building, like why I think that's an interesting way to build a pantheon. And uh, a number of people have said, yeah, I'm basically swiping the concept and applying it to my homebrewed pantheon, mm-hmm. or I'm taking some of your dark gods and shuffling into them into the deck. Um, that give and take, I don't know, the history of gaming is littered with that, right? Like people borrow concepts. Oh, yeah. And then before long, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a standard core race, right? <laughs> that's a standard <laughs> PC race that was whatever. And I don't know, Dwellers in the Lost City, Zeb Cook's thing. It's like the Wanti, the Tazloy, the Mongrel Men, the Aboleth all showed up there for the very first time. And now it's like, well, the Aboleth are kind of central to Galarian. You can't run Pathfinder in their setting without Aboleth. And the Wanti, holy cats, they're everywhere. Everybody loves snake people. So, you know, it was a throw. It wasn't a throwaway. It was a nicely designed monster that just expanded beyond that. And I like to think the big chunks of Midgard are um, are hot rodable, right? You can take mm-hmm. those parts and bolt them onto your own your own engine. Yeah, one of the one of the things I noted is that as much as it is designed for Pathfinder with support for Age, um, yeah. it, it is very much. I mean it. The majority of the book is systemless and could very oh, yeah. easily be ported into half a dozen different games. Well, I ran it as a fourth edition campaign for like a year and a half after yeah. 4E first appeared. It's like, okay, guys, I need to learn 4E. So I'm running, I'm changing my house campaign over. <laughs> and I went like, uh. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I noted, I noted in, the, in our discussion, I mean, the Dragonkin could very easily be Dragonborn. The, the Gear Forge could be Warforged. I mean, you have analogies in fourth edition for a lot of this stuff or, uh, you know, a lot of other systems. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, they, um, having played it as fourth edition for a while, I, I think it should be friendly to that. And, you know, we've had people convert the entire Midgard bestiary uh, to fourth edition. We did, we have uh, fairly good support for fourth edition in Midgard. We have uh, the Midgard bestiary for fourth edition. Uh, that was Brian LaBerge and Richard Green with some help from a few other folks. Including somebody on this podcast. Exactly, Tracy. <laughs> uh, a lot of people chipped in on that one and um, and made it a reality. I mean, the fourth edition monster book almost didn't happen. I put it up as a Kickstarter and I was like, I don't know, maybe. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't willing to throw out that much work and that much money on a project that might have an audience. So I think in that case, Kickstarter did exactly what it was supposed to do. It said, oh, hey, yeah, there is a fourth edition audience for Midgard, and uh, they're waiting for the next thing. Get on it. So, um, so yeah, a lot of people's monsters from the Lost City Adventure and from Courts of the Shadow Fae uh, and from, you know, 
Cobalt Quarterly and other sources all got pulled into one book, and then we converted um, materials that had appeared in Age and Pathfinder as well. So that was a big success. Plus, we raised enough money to get color art, so it actually looks better than the Pathfinder version of the bestiary. <laughs> which, awesome. which is a little, yeah, it's nice. Um, it really turned out pretty well and was real well reviewed and. I can't complain to have another system fully supported there on the monster side. Cool. Uh, so one of the questions we had uh, is, is there anything that you haven't been asked yet that you would like to talk to people about? <laughs> oh, that's such a clever question. I always should anticipate it and have something ready. Make you be the interviewer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, aren't you the guys with the smart questions? Um... <laughs> I don't know. I think, uh, you know, the some of the clever questions are like, if you weren't running it, what would you be playing? Um, <laughs> or what's next? I'm always happy to answer that one. Um, no, I don't have a particular, particular uh, question. I mean, at some point, I really want to play in Midgard, but this is sort of tough for me to arrange. It's like, I need to get a co-author who's, you know, somebody I know pretty well um, to run a game for me. So it's like, okay. And that can be intimidating to... too, I imagine. Yeah. Well, it might be, right? It's like <laughs> it's well... a little bit like running running the Forgotten Realms for Ed Greenwood, right? I mean, exactly. What but... if you have a different take and they don't like it, you know? Yeah, I'm going to stand up at the table and say, that's not how it works. <laughs> you should get Logan to run for you. That would work. I mean, I could probably convince Jeff Grubb to run it. He's local. Um, if I went down to to Texas, maybe Brandon Hodge would run it. Logan, I hear, is an awesome game master. I uh, would love to see see him in action. I bet he could run something. But yeah, I think of Midgard as yeah, I'm the guy who said okay, let's let's put on this this show, let's make this setting happen. But honestly, there are people who own sections of it way more than I do. Right? It's like. <laughs> Dan Voice owns the Northlands, right? He wrote the book, the full regional supplement on the Northlands. So if he wanted to run an adventure there, I'm pretty sure he could pull that off. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, uh, so you're, you're kind of pointing out the what's next. So is that something you'd like to share with us, some stuff that's coming up? Yeah, well, we've been doing this Player's Guide series, which is nice. Uh, it takes all that material we couldn't cram into the 300 pages and kind of puts the player spin on it, right? And it takes each of the regions and says, well, if you're from the Crossroads, here's a ton of cool player options. Uh, new magic, new archetypes, um, you know, new gear, new spells. It's kind of a grab bag, but focused by the fact that it's a particular cultural lens or regional lens like the Crossroads has a lot of gypsy and uh, dwarves and cobalt stuff um, so we've been doing those every other month or so for a while now and the next one is apparently just about on my doorstep I heard from the designer the player's guide to the Ruthenian plain is coming and man I didn't realize how I how excited I was about this one but I grew up in the Midwest in Illinois and like the wide open grasslands always get the shaft in like RPGs right mm -hmm. nobody ever makes the plains interesting uh, so that was one of my secret goals for Midgard was to actually take this huge Ruthenian plain area 
grasslands, rolling hills, a few rivers, and a whole lot of nomadic cultures and make them like interesting and playable um, by putting in centaurs and slavers and Russian tyrannical despot types like the Tsar of Vidim. Um, oh, and putting the master of the mountain right in the middle of everything. He's sort of this badass diabolist who basically yeah, married into hell and... <laughs> I don't want to give away too much. Anyway, <laughs> all sorts of interesting NPCs and their own machinations around the planes. Uh, and so now I'm going to see all that reflected back by Adam Roy, who's going to player's version of that. Like, okay, here's the horse nomads, here's the slavers, here's the gypsies, here's the centaurs, here's the, you know, Cossacky kind of guys as archetypes, as schools of magic, as equipment, as new spells. Um, are, those so, are those books mostly um, more setting material with a, with a player sort of bent to it, or is it more crunch? Super crunchy with a, a candy-coated setting shell, okay. right? If you had it all, I mean, like the Crossroads one, if you have a dwarf culture and you wanted to... Put in some additional dwarf magic on runes. Hey, you know, there you go. If you had a cobalt ghetto in your own personal homebrew, and of course, everybody's got a cobalt ghetto in one of their cities, right? Um, <laughs> you could use that part. All right, so some of it's setting specific, but um, but big chunks of it meant to be plug and play. And I assume Pathfinder. And they are Pathfinder. The player's guides are Pathfinder. I'm curious whether, you know, Brian and Richard and other people from the 4E gang will, will sort of show up and say, yeah, well, you know, we could do that as themes and we could do that as 4E. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or whether the, I mean, the wealth of character options in 4th edition is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I don't know. Um, the Pathfinder ones seem to be doing pretty well. Sure. Um, and age does backgrounds differently, so you know that's less of a good option for uh, for a series like that. But yeah, the art's good, the writing's good, and people seem to be very pleased to have sort of the player's guide to Midgard in, uh, in four or five installments. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think uh, that's what we got for you tonight. Thanks for joining us. Oh, glad to uh, glad to talk. Thanks for having me. And uh, I believe we plan uh, in another month or two to talk about some more Midgard products with uh, with Brian. So, oh, awesome! We'll, All right, uh, we'll let you know when those come along too. Sure, sure. Well, um, always happy to talk, and uh, and yeah, I'll have to I'll have to listen to Brian's show. Right. And still, we can direct people to uh, coboldquarterly dot com. Is that still the URL? No, no, no it's coboldpress dot com now. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's all changed. You keep changing things on me. It was all it was all open design at first, and then it was all Cobalt Quarterly for a while. That was like seven years ago. We were on Live Journal. <laughs> I mean, it was well. That's that was when we when you and I first started talking. Yes, yes, it is that <laughs> long. So it's always good to talk. Excellent. So we'd like to say uh, thanks to Wolfgang Bauer, Jeff Wynn, listeners who use our affiliate links to Amazon and DNA Classics. At the Tome Show, where you can also find our show notes. That's at thetomeshow.com, and you can also email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that is episode 213, where I have become a kobold. 
skittering in the dregs of your city, while everyone else clamors in the city above with their clockwork people and mysteries and gods and who knows what else. In this look at the Midgard campaign setting on... I'm on the wall.